Hello again, and thanks for downloading the weekly Curio. I'm the Whip Theater's Tom Britton. And I'm College of Curiosity's Jeff Wagg. We're going to start this one like we start every weekly curio with the first half of our puzzle. So this was picked as the funniest funniest joke in the world, and it's very simple. What's brown and sticky? Mars Rover Curiosity has gotten a report card. They say, so the headline is, is uh, Curiosity Rover receives mixed reviews in NASA commission. But now I'm looking at the mission rating and uh, budget guideline recommended. They say excellent, fair, poor, blah, blah, yeah. blah, right? It all says excellent and very good. Uh, one person gave it good slash fair. That I would be thrilled with this report card. Varying degrees of excellent, good, and very good. Well, those those aren't people there. Um, seg- so it, it's a common misconception that, oh, Curiosity is this robot on Mars. Like, well... No, Curiosity is like 16 different experiments packaged into one. And so they actually rate each one on its science mission separately. So, you know, everything got good, very good, except what they call MEX, which is Mars Express, which is the satellite that's going around Mars that communicates with Curiosity. That only got fair. So what does that mean? Well, if you, if you read into the article, and there's 20 or 30 articles about this topic, some of the oversight committee is upset that all this money was spent on certain portions of the entire rover and they haven't really been used very much. They're concerned that the rover is just kind of, you know, cruising around and visiting Mars, but not really doing any hard science. And, well, you know, what is Curiosity's mission? I mean, it's not one mission. It's to explore Mars, but that could be anything. It's, yeah, and it, and so there's all these different tools on there. Each, like, there's a laser drill, and there's cameras, and they're all run by different teams, and everyone has their different desires. But there's only one object that can move on Mars, and ultimately, whoever's controlling that controls the science. So Curiosity is up there, and the question is, how do we best utilize it? And there's, of course, there's going to be a struggle over that. Oh, well, I think it's good, too. I think it's good that these various committees have their own agendas. Yeah. And they all want a million things, and they're all very angry that they're only getting half a million things. Yep. The, you know, the camera... Don't be satisfied. No, exactly. Know? If everyone's satisfied, then they're not paying attention because opportunities... Oh, sorry for the bad wording, but opportunities are being lost on Mars. No, nothing. Sorry, opportunity. I wasn't referring to you specifically. But, um, and they have to be lost because if they're not, that means there are too few opportunities, and, that, and that's crazy. So what I think what typically would happen is they do a panorama see some objects and like the chemical team would say, wow, that rock is a different color. Let's go look at that. Or the geology team would say that mountain ridge over there looks really interesting. Let's get a closer look at that and so on. And then they just will fight. So maybe this is bad reporting then. Maybe every review should be a mixed review because every department should not be happy. They can't write. Should be the perfect compromise. All of you are miserable. Good. (laughs) Let's go towards that mountain. You have to figure out what's the most important thing. Where's our biggest gap in data, you know, and and then, and focus on that. I would hope that's what their mission is. But part of curiosity, it's got to be marketing. It's got to be. Oh, absolutely. You've got to draw circles in Mars as a donut and then take a picture of it and send it to NASA to give to Twitter to put out as a sponsored tweet because ultimately you're asking me for tax dollars in some form through a senator or whatever, but ultimately you're trying to market this at least a little bit. Yep. Seven minutes uh, in hell. They gave oh, it a yeah. name. They did a big graphic. We all watched. You well, should have watched it. It was fantastic. They named it Curiosity because some school kids said that's what they should name it. And, yeah, and there has to know. be. There has to be a marketing element. And yeah, I'm sure that is. that makes every hard scientist sick to their stomach. 
Right, because you know th- this person spent their entire life studying the chemistry of Mars, and then oh my God, they're part of a team that has a chemical laser on Mars and can actually tell the components of any rock they want, except that they have to convince everybody else that that's more important well, than anything they else. They can't do it today because this jackass in the eight hundred dollar suit with the slick hair has decided <laughs> right. to put some crap on Twitter. And why is he even in my laboratory? Yep. This is bullcrap. How many of nerds? How many of us nerds have done that? Yeah, <laughs> where it's like this is stupid. You know, here comes doing the suits. Science. This shouldn't yeah. be marketing. But in the real world, unfortunately, you have to go ask idiots for money. You have to ask average people for money. You have to, we're all getting a vote. Different government contractors are in different states. So maybe Arkansas built this one part, and they they have a strong lobbyist, and or their senator is on some oversight committee. It's a government project. There's lots of politics, and um, so I still got to blame the journalist. Then I st- ultimately, if we could figure this out, why couldn't this article figure it out? I, it's funny because if, when you look at the article, it has all these uh, acronyms and everything. They don't even bother defining them. We had to look other places <laughs> to find the. You know, like here, here's some data. Oh, look, it says fair. Oh, Curiosity got failing grades. Well, no, nobody is saying Curiosity is a failed project. The moment it landed, it was a huge success. Oh, that that whole night, all I was oh, seeing. Yeah. Now, granted, my news feed is going to be populated with the more nerdy people. <laughs> yes. You know, the VMA's got no traffic on my Facebook page, <laughs> but the seven minutes in hell got all the yeah. traffic that I'm, night. I'm going to hold my breath for seven minutes. We were all down here at the observatory yep. watching it live. I was for no good reason. Yep. We could watch on our computer. But we yeah, want well, to be true. together, you know, dressed in our Star Trek uniforms, yeah, staring sure. at a screen as one. It, yeah, That's it's, it's that. You know, my people are in line for an iPhone right now for no good reason. They just want to line up and go buy gadgets. <laughs> yeah. You could get it next week on Amazon, but no, I want to wait in line. I want to, you know, the new. I want to wait in line and have all the problems that they're always are there the very first time these things come. Oh, that's the fun of being an early adopter. (laughs) You know, if you don't get to complain and bend it on camera, then what's the (laughs) point of being an early adopter? Um, We have to give a shout out to India, who, uh, you know, India launched their first Mars mission and it didn't explode, which is a huge accomplishment. That's better than any Mars mission I've done. The, the, the British kind of, uh, will dispute whether it was the first. So apparently, you know, the first U S mission to Mars failed. A lot of first missions to Mars failed. The English have a claim that they sent a dual mission. It was an orbiter and a lander and the lander failed, but the orbiter got there so they can claim first status. It doesn't matter. What's really interesting is how much money India spent on this, which was like a fraction of what we would spend. And it kind of goes to show that maybe we shouldn't be focusing on these massive, enormous missions that cost billions of dollars. Maybe we just need to keep doing the few hundred thousand dollar missions every once in a while, or a few million dollars. We have to be realistic. How exciting is it, too, that the technology's gotten so affordable that countries with less domestic product, with less Mm -hmm. GDP, with less money, buy a lot, buy a big factor. The difference between America and India is vast. Sure, yeah. And even more pronounced in the 60s when we were putting men on on the moon, right? So now it is... The world has gotten a little richer in general, Mm -hmm. a little better in general, but specifically the cost has dropped so low that now India is a major player in space. England, we've got Russia, we've got an international space station. How long before Sri Lanka, Taiwan, Thailand, Japan, we're we're now packed for space trying to land on Mars, trying to get to Jupiter, trying to move out of the solar system just for personal pride like your local football club, yep. just to say India did it too. Well, hey, don't forget Sri Lanka. We almost landed a lander there last <laughs> <Right>. week. <laughs> well, hey, look, Thailand's on its way in three weeks, so they're going to put it up online. And to see all these different countries, all these different engineers, all these different kinds of thought being done, it's an exciting time when we are, what, how many generations from it being an iPhone 
and a yeah. GoPro bouncing on the planet Mars because some high school team put it together on right. a Kickstarter that's what I'm for thinking, 15 yeah. grand. Right. No, that's absolutely true. I mean, uh, it, it, technically they could now. You just need a big enough rocket and, and some math. Oh, God, could you imagine you know? if, I mean, private companies are going to space now. Yeah. Countries that would not have been world players on the stage at all 40 years ago. We're kind of where we thought we'd be like by 1980. You know, I mean, this I talk about this a lot. As a kid who was born in the 60s and grew up in the 70s, I thought I'd be living on the moon by now. And I'm I not. I definitely thought I'd be wearing a onesie. That's the one thing that <laughs> yeah. every futuristic movie agreed on is we would all be in unisex onesies and here i am wearing a shirt and pants separate this is bs i got yeah. no front zipper let's see i've got jeans sneakers and a t-shirt i'm not Same eating thing. people and the apes haven't taken over so not everything is <laughs> that's that's amazing though to think that we will truly have an international space race yeah just because everyone can play now right that's exciting to me that's so cool that you know one billionaire can put fund a space program one country can fund a space program yeah it's really, really cool. So, yeah, we're finally getting to the future, and I, I am fully in favor. And now it's time for the Weekly Curios, Mysteries of the Beyond! Ooh, well, Meaning beyond, like, 40 miles that way. Yeah. The Lake <laughs> Michigan Triangle Enigma. You've heard of the Bermuda Triangle, but have you experienced the Lake Michigan Triangle? It's like the Bermuda Triangle, but with not as good of food, not as good of beaches, yeah. much paler people, and less disappearances. Not the greatest climate in the world, and, uh, yeah. So... <laughs> it's way less cool. So, you know, in 1960... There were no triangles. I mean, yeah, there were triangles, but there were no... <laughs> Back in my day, we, <laughs> we didn't, didn't have geometry. half a square. <laughs> it was this guy named Berlitz. You've heard of Berlitz uh, translation books and stuff like that. Same guy. He came up with this idea that there was this thing called the Bermuda Triangle that connected... Well, it depends. There's different versions. But basically, it connected Bermuda, San Juan, and Miami. That's the basic version. And that all these planes and boats disappeared there. Well, turns out it's true. Lots of planes and boats do disappear there because there are lots of planes and boats there. And there's lots of storms and, you know, stuff happens. And um, anyway, so of course people read these books, the Bermuda Triangle, whatever, and they're like... And that caught fire in the Oh, that was huge. That and Chariots of the Gods and all that other stuff. And they disappear between these three points, which are Manitowoc, Wisconsin in the upper left... Ludington, straight across in Michigan, and then down all the way to Benton Harbor, down in the lower left-hand part of Michigan, and that creates a big triangle. And uh, I'll, there'll be a, a link to this in the show notes, so you can actually see the map. But the first thing you notice with this map is it covers most of Lake Michigan. Which is a very busy lake, especially in certain parts of its history. With, yeah. I mean, I live right next to the beach Yeah, here in Chicago. And on any given summer day, I can see a ton of sport watercraft, which means a ton right. of amateurs. Drunks, you know, and there's and then there's a lot of regular shipping, too. You know, the Edmund Fitzgerald, everyone's heard of the Edmund Fitzgerald. That wasn't Lake Michigan, but that type of thing. Big freighters filled with ore and pipes and steel, you know, steel mills, Gary, Indiana, uh, not far away. So this triangle, though, is blamed for all these kind of things. But if you look at the map even closer, you find out that Manitowoc and Ludington is a major ferry route. That is the northern points of Lake Michigan. So if you're on land and you want to cross Lake Michigan, it makes more sense that you want to cross it from the north. Because the closer you get to south, the more economical it is to just go around. 
So yes, of course there's a lot of stuff missing up there. Uh, and in fact, if you get on the SS Badger, um, which is the last coal-burning ferry in the United States, you can actually go right across the top of the Lake Michigan Triangle. So what does it mean? Well, I'm going to put it this way. If there is a problem with shipping or boating or airplanes anywhere in the world, there's one organization that knows about it, and that is the insurance company. In this case, let's say Lloyd's of London, who insures many, many ships. They adjust their rates according to how dangerous the route is. For example, for those people who've seen Captain Phillips, if you take your tanker near Somalia, your insurance rates go way up. But in the Bermuda Triangle and in the Lake Michigan Triangle, the rates don't change. They're exactly the same. And that means that the average number of ships and planes disappearing is exactly what would be expected in those types of water. Well, these are just hot spots because there's a lot of traffic and commerce. Right. There's a lot of accidents occurring. And the triangle part is there, any three points makes a triangle. The fact that it's a triangle. So we humans, pattern seekers, we see a triangle and we think, oh... Why is it a triangle? Why is it that shape? And it's just because somebody looked at the map and saw a bunch of data points. This happened here. This happened there. And then just picked three cities and drew a triangle they around it. Pick three clusters also because yeah. the clusters are going to happen near the city. Well, that too. Right. Because cities grow up around any place where you send ships to drop off goods. If you did it the other way around right. would produce a city. Right. Eventually people start coming yeah, there to pick true. up the stuff you were dropping on the beach. They're all they ports. would build a town. Yeah. They're all ports. And and then when you look into this a little more, you realize that, hmm, these things didn't disappear in the triangle. They disappeared because they were associated with the triangle. So if you look in the original Bermuda Triangle books, some of those planes that disappeared were in the Azores thousands of miles from the Bermuda Triangle. Some of them were way over the United States, like in Georgia. And the same thing's true with the Lake Michigan Triangle. Some planes disappeared. We don't know where they went. They could possibly be in there. So, oh, yes, it must be the, the triangle. And then, so, like, every every big lake has a monster legend exactly, associated with it. Exactly, it's the same idea. Every big body of water should now have a triangle. Right. And just put it on a T-shirt so that eventually... A school kid would ask, well, why does why does my local lake also have a triangle? And your dad could say, because it's no more statistically important yeah. than the Bermuda Triangle, son. Now go eat your Wheaties. Or, or you can write your own book and draw a triangle on the map and stick it there and then list every boating disaster that ever happened. By the way, Lake Michigan does have a monster. It is a sea cat. A sea jaguar, they call it. This is our a monster. A sea jaguar. A sea jaguar. You know, we, we, sorry, we don't get any ancient dinosaurs or anything like that. We get sea jaguar. A story from an academic journal called the Plus One. Yeah. I'm going to just read a little quote. A team of scientists at the University of Copenhagen says the tiny organism does not fit into any of the known subdivisions of the animal kingdom. Such a situation has occurred only a handful of times in the past 100 years the organisms, which were originally collected in 1986, are described in the academic journal. Yeah. That's nuts. They say we think it belongs in the animal kingdom somewhere. The question we don't know where. is where. Yeah, I love the quote at the very end. We published this paper in part as a cry for help. So <laughs> this thing. That's the best beginning to a horror movie ever. Yeah. Most. John Carpenter's The Thing. <laughs> help. Most of the things. Um, oh, wait, quick. Quick trivia from The Thing. Have you ever seen The Thing, a classic movie? The very beginning of the movie, these guys are shouting in Norwegian. They actually tell the whole story. If you speak oh, Norwegian, yeah, that, yeah. you know the whole story. But everybody else, you know, us, us Americans who don't speak a lot of Norwegian, we don't know. Anyway, this thing is weird. It's um, 
most the one of the most interesting features about this is that if it's an animal, it's very strange because it's not does not have bilateral symmetry. So most animals you find have bilateral symmetry, which simply means that the left half is a mirror of the right half. Think of any animal, insects, almost anything is uh, bilateral symmetry. Uh, even like jellyfish are bilateral symmetry. Um, this isn't. And there aren't a lot of animals like this. So that's, that's a perplexing thing. And then it doesn't seem to fit the definition of animal, yet it also doesn't fit the definition of plant. So they're... They're in the situation where could they have discovered an entire new kingdom of organisms? It's not impossible. It just looks like, just looks like a mushroom. Yeah, that's what they're saying, but it's not a mushroom, fungus. But it's yeah. not a fungus. So it's, it's, it's discovered the same form factor, just the revolutionary pressure. It's an alien. I mean, it's from our planet, but to our understanding of how life is organized on this planet, this thing is alien. And in, in a way it is. It's a bit of a time machine. They're saying its closest relatives lived 500 or 600 million years ago. That's way before the dinosaurs. That's way, way back. Here's the big problem, too. The originals from 1986 were preserved in formaldehyde, later transferred to 80% alcohol, and now you can't analyze the genetic material. Because yeah. the way they were stored, and they're so rare, good luck finding more. So the cry for help may be someone may have found right. one out, out there and has the same problems. They haven't published a paper. Right. So they can help place the thing just by providing a better sample. Yeah, people are going to library. A more modern preservation technique. They'll go back and look and see what they've got. Or, you know, maybe someone will find one in a net. I mean, I, I don't know how. Th these can't be common. No, these things came from uh, a long way. Hang on, I had it here two seconds ago. I'll tell you. Uh 635 to 540 million years ago, between 400 meters and 1,000 meters on the southeast Australian continental slope near Tasmania. Yeah, that's pretty deep. That's Strangely, that's where I'm going on. That was a scientific cruise. So while you're there, go about 400 meters down and grab anything you yeah. see that looks like it belongs in a pasta. Yeah, you, yeah you're going to need uh, you're going to need a submarine ROV <laughs> type of thing to do this. But but so if you live happen. in Tasmania and want to lend Jeff your submarine yeah. for the day, we're going to go find a new form of life and we'll name it after you. That's right. I'll be in Sydney and I'll be in I'll be on a ship in Sydney actually in a, in, a, in a couple weeks. So let me borrow your ROV. I'll toss it over the side when we get close. No, I, what, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah. I mean, really? <laughs> no, these, these, uh, someone's going to do another mission down there to get these. Uh, and, and there are a lot of missions going, along, uh, going on right now with ROVs that are being publicly and privately funded. And um, there, it's, uh, scientists are organizing it, but there's a lot of amateurs involved, too. And I think this would be a lot of fun if they could get involved with this. All that remains is to thank you for downloading and listening to the Weekly Curio I'm the Whip Theater's Tom Britton. And I'm College of Curiosity's Jeff Wagg with the second half of the puzzle. Very simple. What's brown and sticky? And the answer is a stick. And if you don't think that's the funniest joke in the world, you can Google Richard Wiseman and find out why it is.